There's an old saying, tell me if you've heard it before, truth hurts. Anyone heard that one before? It's sometimes used as an excuse for someone to be mean to you, but it's a true statement. The truth hurts sometimes. In theology, we find a bit of a twist on that statement. People like to say, doctrine divides. Some people like to say that when someone is speaking of some unpopular doctrine that others don't want to hear. Hey, don't bring that doctrine stuff around here. Doctrine divides. But perhaps there was no one on earth who had more truth hurts and doctrine divides kind of statements than love incarnate himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus says things like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's the same God, same Jesus who said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's the same one who said, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's the same Jesus who said, To the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? It's the same Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. It's the same Jesus who said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Jesus has a lot of things to say that are not popular He had some wonderfully comforting things to say in his earthly ministry. We know that to be true. But he also said some incredibly uncomfortable things. Let's not forget that Jesus would eventually be crucified on the cross, not for being too nice, not for holding too many toy drives, too too many soup kitchens. Jesus would eventually be crucified because of the things that he said popular Jesus of today probably not be crucified for the things that he said. He would probably be too popular to be crucified. It would seem that there are those who truly believe in Christ, love and believe in him, even when he says hard things. And those who don't truly believe in him tend to find that doctrine divides and truth hurts. But what separates these two groups of people? Why do some people love both the hard and comforting truths, while others find much of what Jesus has to say too much to endure? Is it because some are smarter than others? Some are just making better choices than others? Well, this morning I'd like to begin walking through what will be identified later on in John chapter 6 as the hard sayings of Jesus. We've already been confronted with some difficult truth, no doubt. But here in verse 41 through 51, as we're going to look at today, and really through the end of the chapter, you're going to see the difficulty of what Jesus has to say. It's amped up. and You're going to see that what that produces is an aversion to his hard sayings that comes to the forefront. We're going to find that false believers 
love the comforting truths of Christ, but cannot endure His hard sayings. Thus, they forfeit the benefit of the comforting truth. While true believers endure the hard sayings, leaving them, leading them to receiving the benefit of the comforting truth. Said it another way, it is in the hard sayings of Christ that we find comforting truth. So that's our goal for the rest of this chapter of chapter 6. We could take the rest of the chapter in one big lump, but unfortunately I am not talented enough to do that. So we're going to have to deal with my limitations and take it a little bit at a time and look at verses 41 through 51 today and then hopefully one or two more times we're going to see look at the hard sayings of Jesus. We're going to see how people react to what Jesus has to say and Lord willing, we're going to find great comfort even in the hard sayings of Jesus. So that's our text this morning is John 6, 41 through 51. Let's just go ahead and read verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Let's pray. Father, uh, I confess, we confess that without the working of your Spirit, we're all experiencing the aversion to your hard truth, the hard sayings. So I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to, to hear the comfort in the hard sayings, to understand them, to love you, all of your word, the hard stuff and the easy stuff, to love it all. I pray that you would help us to understand this morning. Help me to speak clearly this morning. I pray that Christ would be glorified through it all. In his name, amen. We're just going to have four simple head headings today. Verses 41 and 42, the grumbling about Christ. The Jews grumbled about him. The last time that we heard from this crowd, they were questioning Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? You remember that? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That was back in verses 30 to 32, to which Jesus responded that there is an even better bread than the manna that they ate in the wilderness. This bread comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They were very interested in that bread. They said, sir, give us this bread always. But they thought he meant the kind of bread they ate the day before. Then Jesus entered a new part of the conversation wherein he explained what he meant and what the sign of the fish and the loaves actually was pointing to. And we haven't heard anything else from the crowd since then until now. It's been Jesus talking and teaching as we looked at last week, he was teaching us about our eternal security. So how did this crowd react? Maybe they were excited about what he had to say. Hey, we get bread and eternal security? This is great. We love you, Lord. Are they being converted by his teaching? Well, let's check in on them in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. 
They were grumbling about what he said. And what did he say that made them grumble? It wasn't that he said that they don't believe, because remember he said that. He said, I have told you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. And, and that's not what John says they were grumbling about. What is it that they were grumbling about? Is that Jesus said that he's the bread that came down from heaven. And it appears that they are combining what Jesus said back in verses 35 and 38. He said, I am the bread of life, and I have come down from heaven. So evidently they're putting these two things together and they're understanding that Jesus is saying that he's the bread that came down from heaven. And they're like, what? And they're grumbling about him. Verse 42 shows us that the part that most bothers them about this statement, it's not the bread statement so much. They said, verse 42, is not this Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Do you see what part is missing that they said in verse 41? First it was, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now it's what they're focused really on is, how can he say, I have come down from heaven? How can he say this? Isn't, isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? Isn't, isn't he from Nazareth, from whence nothing good comes? That's Mary and Joseph's boy. How is he going to tell us that he's coming down from heaven? Later on in verse 52, they will then also have a problem with him saying that he's bread. But right now, what's most prevalent in their grumbling is the fact that Jesus is claiming to come down from heaven. Why is this a problem? They understand that Jesus is making a claim regarding his deity. Who comes from heaven if not the one who dwells in heaven and God? They understand what he's saying. And they're saying, no, we know your family. We know your mom and your dad. There's no way you came from heaven. What do they not know about his birth? So Joseph might have raised the boy, but that's not his father. But that's what they're saying. That's what they believe. There, that's Mary and Joseph's boy. The Nazareth kid. He's from heaven? No. And, and this isn't, we have to understand, this isn't just a, a line of curiosity. There is a sense of great displeasure in what they're saying. This is grumbling. Isn't this really amazing, though? They, they've eaten the miracle bread. They were a part of the kind of miraculous provision that they have not seen since when? Since the Israelites ate the manna in the wilderness. They haven't seen anything like this happen before. But now they're saying, no. And remember not long ago, they were even saying, this is the prophet who is to come. They wanted to make him king. But now what Jesus is saying is too much for them. Instead, they grumble. It looks like we're seeing a new iteration of what transpired in the wilderness many years ago, aren't we? What did the Israelites do? 
What is the one trademark of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wilderness, is grumbling. The moment they're freed from captivity hundreds of years ago, and if you recall in Exodus chapter 3, God says, I have heard their cries. They were wanting freedom. He grants them freedom, and they instantly say, Oh, we should have, I wish we had died in Egypt. Because at least then, there was meat in the pots. We had meat. Now you brought us out here to this wilderness where we're just going to die. I wish we had died back there. It's, it's the same thing here, isn't it? There, there's, it's the same kind of attitude. What you are giving is not good enough. They grumble that they don't have food. They grumble about a lack of water. They grumble about then the food that God did provide. I'm sorry, was the miracle food not enough for you? Miraculously providing food for you day after day. You didn't have to go hunt. It just, you just took a basket out and got food. And it was always enough for the day. And then the day before the Sabbath, they had enough for two days so that they would have enough for the Sabbath so that they could rest. And you know what they say to all of that? We loathe this worthless food. Oh man, if they are not exactly like us Americans. Nothing's good enough. We get a new thing, it's not good enough. I need a newer thing, I need a better thing. Oh, I got this horrible, this horrible iPhone. $1,000 supercomputer in my pocket. This horrible, that's me. It's me too. I wonder how much we look at the Israelites and we say, if I had been there, you know, if I had been there, if you had been there, you'd be right there with them. Saying, yeah, you're right. This, I am tired of manna. I am tired of God providing quails for us. I am sick of this. That's our human nature. We're exactly like these people. The tense of the verbs here in John 6 indicates that they began grumbling. It wasn't a grumble. It was an ongoing grumbling. Ongoing grumbling about Christ and what He has to say. Natural man always has a problem with who Christ is and what he says. He cannot accept spiritual things. He cannot see beyond the natural. And when I say the natural man, I mean the man who is born on this earth in a natural body, who thinks in a natural earthly way. That means all of us. All of us qualify for that before Christ. We are all just natural, fallen human beings. And this is what we're like. We can't understand the spiritual things of God. I didn't make that up, by the way. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Boy, is that not easy. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why, Paul? For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 
He's not a spiritual man. He does not have the Spirit of God to illuminate the truth to him. He only thinks in natural human terms. In other words, I want more bread. And once I have more bread, I want better bread. And after I have better bread, I want even better bread. And then I want steak with my bread. And then I want better steak with my bread. That's natural man. If you find that that is your thought pattern, and that's exactly how you are, my friend, you might just be living just in the natural state of mind, void of the Spirit of God. It might just be because the Holy Spirit has not illuminated truth to you. Now, I hope that's not the case of any of us here. The natural man says, isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? He's from Nazareth. He's not from heaven. They would sooner call him a liar than Lord. That's natural man. That is human, fallen humanity. They're willing to believe a lot, a lot of really great things about him, but not the one thing that matters. They're willing to believe that he's the prophet who is to come. They're willing to make him king. Yeah, we'll serve you. You can be king over Israel. Absolutely keep the bread flowing. They're willing to believe that he has miraculous power, healing power. They're willing to believe that he's a moral teacher. But they're not willing to believe him. It's the same today, you know. Many people are willing to believe a lot of really great things about Jesus, but they cannot accept that He is God. They can love His selflessness. They can love His message about love. Who doesn't want to hear a message about love? Who doesn't want to hear a message about love your neighbor? How, how many people do you know that are far from God that, that say things like that? You know, I just try to be good. I try to treat others the way I want to be treated. Don't know a thing about God. You know what they're saying in saying that? Jesus was a great teacher. He had some great things to say, you know. And if we just try our hardest to apply his principles to our life, you know what? We can make it. There are people, I've seen this, and maybe it's always been there, I don't know. I've only recently come across these people on YouTube who are trying to take biblical principles and apply them to business they don't really talk about honoring the Lord with your business. It's just how to manipulate the principles of tithing and giving in order to benefit profitability in your, in your business. That is the natural man. How can I get more money? How can I get more bread? Isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? That is what the natural man is like. But it's not because man is a victim Scripture tells us that we're all fallen in Adam, but it's not because we're a victim to, our, to this sinfulness that, that has just come upon us and it's alien to us. It's that we choose to stay this way. I, I want to reiterate the wording there from 1 Corinthians 2.14 because it's very applicable to our text. Paul wrote that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And then listen, and he is not able to understand 
Did you see the order of events there? The natural person doesn't accept the things of God, and he is not able to understand them. He is not able to understand them because he doesn't want to. He will not. He cannot because he will not. He doesn't want to such to the effect that he can't. They're willing to believe a lot of greatly great things about Jesus, but not that he's God. And it's not that it's it's just too foreign a concept for them to understand. It's that they don't want to understand. Friends, such was the case for you and I before Christ. We didn't want to. I don't want that to be true. So I cannot believe it's true. He rejects the things of God. He doesn't accept them, so he's not able to understand them. He's not a victim of his fallenness. He is a rebel. He is in rebellion. Perhaps nowhere is that seen more clearly than in natural man staring in the face of God incarnate after having experienced a miracle in saying, isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? He came from Nazareth. He didn't come from heaven. God incarnate. And they can't accept it. Why? Because they won't. They don't want to. So then, if, if natural man cannot believe because he will not believe, how does anyone ever believe? If, if in our fallenness, we can't believe because we don't want to believe, then how do we ever believe? How is anyone ever saved? Let's look at Jesus' response. The drawing to Christ. Verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's really amazing Jesus refers to their unbelief in verse 36 by saying, I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. And then he responds to their unbelief by saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then here again, Jesus is confronted once again with their unbelief in verses 41 and 42. And he follows that up with a very similar statement. But instead of saying all the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus now says it in a different way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you see that? It's the same, it's almost the same state. It's two sides of the same coin. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. They're two sides of the same coin, both explaining how it is that those who cannot, because they will not believe, end up believing. This teaches us that ultimately the decisive factor in our salvation, in our believing in Jesus, is not this. It's not with every head bowed and every eyes closed. Raise your hand if you're just tired of being sad. That's not the decisive factor. What is the decisive factor is this hard saying of Jesus. It's the drawing of the Father. 
why would Jesus say something like this? Doesn't he know that doctrine divides? Churches split over verses like this. Over this verse in particular, people leave churches because of this. Why would Jesus say it? Because it's true. Let's deal with Jesus' statement here. This truth, I'm going to argue, as, as hard as it might be, is in reality very comforting. It's very comforting truth. Do not grumble among yourselves. It's almost like he's saying, look, you're, you're grumbling now, I'm going to give you a reason to grumble. You ever said that, parents? You're crying? I'll give you a reason to cry. And I'm sure none of you have said that ever, right? <laughs> Great logic, by the way. Huh? You're crying, I'm going to make you cry more. That's kind of almost what's going on here. It's like, what are you grumbling for? I'm going to give you a reason to grumble. You think you're grumbling about that? You've heard nothing yet. You know who else heard something very similar to that is Nicodemus. When Jesus was saying the very hard truth that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Do you know what he says in verse 7 of that chapter? Do not marvel that I said that to you. Look, you want to, you want to really marvel? The Spirit blows like the wind where it will. And he blows his mind with just doubling down on the sovereignty of God. He doesn't soften it. He doesn't say, oh, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, they're grumbling. How, can I, how, do, how do I re-say this in a different way? He doubles down. Says, you think that's a reason to grumble? Listen to what I'm about to tell you now. Don't grumble at that. The sovereign grace of God is a very, very difficult thing for us in our humanity to wrestle with. Some people wrestle and fall on the side of loving that truth. And some people wrestle and fall on the side of hating it and saying, no, the God I serve would never do that. And it's okay to wrestle, you know. It's okay to find this very difficult because it is. It's a hard saying. But what we must not do is say, no, I won't believe that. Because what you will do is you will harden yourself so that you cannot believe it. Because you will not believe it. But what we have to do as, as Christians is wrestle with the truth. And by God's grace come to an accurate understanding of what the Bible teaches. If we have a Christianity that's very easy to believe through and through, where we're never confronted with difficult texts, if in your personal Bible reading time, you're never challenged, you're never stung up, you're never walking away saying, I hope God gives me grace and mercy to do this or to believe this. And my friend, it's very possible that what you're doing is just reading the Bible just to read it and not really studying it and coming to it humbly saying, teach me, O Lord. Open my eyes to see. Because you know what? This Bible is full of hard sayings from front to back. Do you want to know a really hard saying? Hell. That 
Hell is where God pours out his wrath. It's not where the devil pokes you with a pitchfork. Even Satan is in hell. He is put into hell to be punished. It's not where he reigns. That's a hard saying. But if we never wrestle with these things, we're just doing surface level reading. And and we rob ourselves of, of growing in the Lord. That's a side note. But let's look at what Jesus says here. He says, no one. That's an all-inclusive statement that means everyone from your dear Aunt Sally who grew up in church and would never hurt a fly to the drug dealer who's overdosing in a back alley somewhere. It means everyone. No one means no one. No one. Not the religious people. Not the people who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth. No one. That's what that means. And then he says the word, he uses the word can. No one can. It means to be able or capable. Have any of you parents ever asked, answered the question from your children, can I go outside by saying, I don't know, can you? Probably never said that one either, have you? I don't know, can you? What are you understanding there? Is the child is able, they have legs, they know where outside is, they know how to open the door, they can, they have the ability to do it. What you mean to ask is, do you have the permission to go outside? May you go outside? That's exactly what is happening here. He's not saying no one may come to Christ. He's saying no one can. No one has the ability. No one is capable. Everyone has permission. Because Jesus freely offers, come to me. That's your permission. But the question is, do we have the ability? And the reality is, apart from the work of God, the answer is no. We're going to see that here. They cannot believe because they will not. They will not believe in Jesus, so they cannot believe in Jesus. The issue is the desire of the heart, or rather, lack thereof. It's in natural man, there is no desire to come to Christ, such that because he doesn't desire it, he cannot do it. This is what we call moral inability. He is morally unable to come to him. Now, there is a desire to go to heaven in natural fallen man, at least the heaven that we, does, we dream up in our minds. You know, the one with the gold streets, the big mansion, and pizza that you eat without gaining any weight? That heaven? Oh, that's going to be great. Everyone wants that heaven. They just don't want the real heaven because it's where God dwells and sin doesn't. Natural man doesn't need any help wanting to go to heaven and spared from judgment. Natural man doesn't need any help to to want to be spared from consequences. He wants to be able to sin without consequence. He wants to be able to get away with it. Said another way, natural man is happy to be forgiven for his sins. He doesn't want to be freed from them. This is the state of natural man. No one can. Then he says, come to me. 
He's meaning believe in him. The crowd has clearly come to him physically, haven't they? The crowd came to him. So that's not what he means. The crowd chased him down on the other side of the sea. So he doesn't mean no one can physically walk to me, because that's literally what they did. He means no one can, can, can believe in me. It's the same thing whenever he says, you have seen me, but you don't believe. They saw him, but they didn't see him. They came to him, but they didn't come to him. Again, plenty of people want the blessing of Christ without Christ himself. They did come to him physically, but they didn't come to him for him. Isn't that the first thing that Jesus said when they came to him? Didn't he say, you're not coming to me because you ate... Because of me, you're coming to me because you ate your fish fill of the fish and the loaves. That's why you're coming to me. You're hungry again. They want more blessing. They don't want Jesus. They want more bread. They don't want Jesus as bread. They want Jesus to forgive them for their sin so they can continue on in sin. They're not interested in Jesus himself. Natural man wants there to be many ways to get to heaven. But what did Jesus say? He uses the word me. He's saying that this is exclusive. No one can come to him who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one way to get to heaven. No one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Natural man wants every way to be good to get to heaven. Well, you know, there's, they've got their thing. They got their, who's to say who's right or wrong? Jesus. That's who. He said there is the one way, and it's through Him. There's one way. Our faith is very exclusive. Not in a prideful, arrogant way, but in the sense that there's one way. One. You don't get to make it up. You don't get to choose some other way and kind of blaze your own trail there. It's not a place where all roads lead to heaven. That's not the case. There's one road and it's narrow. There's one doorway and it's narrow. And it's through Christ Jesus. But then he gives us the one word that gives us some hope. No one can come to me unless. Okay, so there's a chance. So there is a way. There is a way to overcome our inability. There is a way to turn the no one can to at least some can. What is it, Jesus? Is it go to church? Is it go to a Bible study? Is it, is it clean up your life, start listening to more Christian music and not cuss so much? Is it start tithing? What is it, Jesus? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. <sighs> he took it right out of your hands. You can't come to me unless the Father brings you. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This is a very important word. I looked at eight different Bible translations. There's a billion more. But eight different translations, and every one of them translated this word draws. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's 
I bring that up because it's not very often that all of the Bible translations agree that this is the way to interpret the word. And I bring that up because a lot of people like to say that God is doing this. Come on. This is drawing. Come on. Come on. You know, I try that with Jonah and it doesn't work. And he loves me. How much less would that work with sinners who hate God? Come on, come here. Come on. Free bread. Heaven, come on. You know how that word is used in Acts? Drags. You know how it's used in Jeremiah? Jeremiah was at the bottom of the well. They put through a bucket down there to draw him out of the well. They didn't stand at the top of the well and say, Jeremiah, come on. Come on, you silly, silly goose. Just come on. That's not the, what the word means. A really vivid picture is later on when John uses it in John chapter 21. The resurrected Christ comes out to the shoreline. His disciples are out in the boat. They've been fishing. They haven't caught anything. He says, throw it on the other side. And it's, the word says, it's translated hauls, that they could not haul in the load of fish. That's what Jesus is saying. So I bring all of that up to say, if that word is always translated to mean moving something from a place to another, it does not suddenly change its meaning to mean, come on. He's wooing you. He's, he's trying real hard. Get over here. Maybe if we bake an apple pie and turn a fan on and They'll smell it. and they'll, That's not how it works. He's saying that he brings you. Now, do you see how it's so much like what Jesus said? That all that the Father gives to me will come to me? All that the Father gives will come? It's that act of God drawing you? He understands that that's what's happening. The, so if you have come to Christ... It is evidence that the Father has given you to the Son. And if you have come to the Son, it is because the Father has drawn you to the Son. My friend, tell me, which part of that depended on you? Which part of that was He waiting for you to get your act together? Not any of it. That, to me, is so comforting. That even in, in my rebellion, that He brought me to Christ. Now, does this mean that He brings you kicking and screaming as some charge? Some, some say, well, you know, you teach that predestination stuff. Everyone just turns into a robot. Somebody asked, said that to me one time. Well, God doesn't want robots. I said, do I look like a robot? No, but he brought me to Christ. If, if you are in Christ this morning, are you a robot? No, but he brought you to Christ. And how does he do that without making you a robot? It's that he overcomes your can't by giving you a new will. You remember how we said that because we will not, we cannot? He turns your can into a can 
by turning your will not into a will. He changes your will. He gives you a new affection. He gives you a new desire. Where before, I didn't want to come to him. And now, I don't know what happened, but I want to now. So you can. Because there's the desire there now suddenly. You hear Christ say, come to me. And you know what you do? I'm coming. Here I come. Did God make you do that? No, you chose to. You did choose to come. Because God made you willing and able. Because God gave you a desire to come. So that you could respond freely of your own accord. And say, yes Lord, that's what I want. I don't want to sin anymore. I want Christ. That came from within you, did it not? And it came from within you because God put it there. And that's the next thing that we see. The next heading is the teaching about Christ. Verse 45, it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's what happened to you. You heard and you learned from the Father. You didn't even know it was happening. It just happened to you. God spoke to your spirit, bringing you to life. He put his spirit within you. Do you know what Ezekiel says? That he will give you a new heart. That he will put his laws within your heart, Jeremiah says. He's going to write his laws on your heart so that you will obey him. That's so important. We don't have time to flesh it all out. But there are so many implications here of the new covenant that Christ came to bring to us. Bring us into. That he came to bring into fruition. Because in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, do you know what God's talking about there? I will make a new covenant with them. Do you know what else he says? Not like the old one. What was the old one? Do this and live. What's the new one? Live, now do this. How did that happen? Because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. He made it possible so that you now, you, it can be said of you that you've been taught by the Father. How? Because He put His Spirit within you. Now, this doesn't mean that you sat down face to face with him and you were talking back and forth. That's what Jesus goes on to clarify. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, unless we be tempted to pride. You haven't seen the Father. Chill out, right? You have not seen the Father. The only one who has seen the Father is he who came from heaven. He's seen the Father. But 
it can be said of you that you have been taught by God. Because if you have come to Christ, it is evidence that he has put his spirit within you, writing his laws on your heart, removing your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh that now desires to come to Christ. That's what he's saying. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. Do you know what's being spoken of in that chapter? It's the restoration of Israel. Said another way, the restoration of the people of God. What does the number 54 come after? Isaiah 53. Do you know what that's about? The suffering servant. The whole chapter, it's about the suffering servant, that God is going to lay on him the iniquity of us all, that he's going to pay the penalty for us, thus enabling the new messianic reign in Isaiah chapter 54, where it can be said now that all of the members of this this kingdom, this kingdom of God, all of its citizens have been taught by God. Is that not mind-blowing to you? That it can be said of you that you're in the kingdom of God and because you're in that kingdom, it means that you've been taught by God? Not because you did anything. It's because the Father brought you. He said, here, son, here's another one. It's because the Father set his love on you in eternity past. It's because the Father gave you to the Son because he's filling up the kingdom of his Son so that Christ would be glorified. I promise you I could stay there the rest of the day. But this is seen in Matthew chapter 16, by the way. When Jesus asks Peter, do you remember, what do people say of me? And they give a bunch of really complimentary answers, and then he's like, well, what do you say of me? What does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Another way to say that is John chapter 6, verses 45 and 46, that you have been taught by God. That is why you make the good confession, is because you've been taught by God. Lastly, the feeding on Christ. I'm only going to touch briefly on this because this is going to be most of what we deal with next week. The feeding on Christ, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This bread is not like the bread the fathers ate in the wilderness, though they bear some similarities. The manna ultimately pointed to Christ and what he would do, his coming. But they're so hung up on natural things. Do you see that again? They're they're hung up on the manna that the fathers ate in the wilderness. And that's why he corrects them. Your fathers ate the manna. What happened to them? They're dead. They died. It's not about manna. Stop thinking about the physical things. This is about something greater. 
It's, this is pointing to a greater spiritual truth, namely that Jesus is the bread of life. That He, as bread, feeds and gives life to all who will come and eat. And that's why our call to worship said, Come, eat freely, without money. Come and eat. What he's talking about here is believing in Christ. We'll flesh that out more next week. I want to finish by reading again Isaiah 55. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. May God, by His sovereign grace, grant that we would have a taste for this food. Let's pray. Father, I cannot help but be just overwhelmed with the glory of this chapter. Lord, I just pray that something that was said here today is of benefit to your people. I pray that you would give us a greater taste for the things of heaven, for the one who came from heaven, than for the world. And where we have a taste for the world that has yet to die, Lord, give us the strength and the desire to kill it and to replace it with a greater taste. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.